Um, as you can see, there is no senior minister standing here this morning. Um, he's on vacation, but yet he's here, which really makes me quite nervous, actually. But uh, um, how many of you notice what the what it says on the sign out here? Show of hands. It says on the sign, a, mir a miracle will change your life. And uh, to be honest with you, I know that for a fact. And um, I'll tell you why I know that this morning. Um, a number of years ago, I traveled with a husband and wife team, singing team, uh, by the name of Dave and Barb Anderson. Uh, they were headquartered out of the Phoenix, Arizona area, and I traveled with them as their accompanist, their um, keyboard player, their music director, their roadie, their salesman, um, whatever that entailed, um, for two and a half to three weeks out of each month. Um, I was figuring it out the other night, and that comes out to be about 248 um, concerts a year. So two and a half to three weeks out of each month, um, I was gone from home. Um, one of the nice perks about that was that during the wintertime, we were in places that were warm. Uh, the not-so-fun perk was during the summertime, we were also in places, well, we were actually in places that were very warm. Um, but I traveled with them um, pretty much a different state each month. Um, we were preparing our tours in the spring, and a fella uh, from a missionary aviation group in Alaska knew that we were coming to Alaska in August to do some concerts in, uh, in Alaska and in some of the Eskimo villages, and his missionary aviation group, known as MARC, M-A-R-C, Missionary Aviation Repair Center, um, was going to fly us around to the different Eskimo villages and so on, uh, those, those villages that we couldn't get to by, um, by car. In preparing for that, that tour, he called back and said, would you consider going, instead of going to a number of different Eskimo villages, would you consider going to Russia? Um, and uh, the fellow I worked for, Dave Anderson, um, without asking Barbara myself, said, sure, we'd be glad to go. And so he booked us to go to, to Russia. So in August, um, we flew uh, from Minneapolis to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage. And in Anchorage, uh, a couple of airplanes from Soldatna, where the Missionary Avi Aviation Group was um, headquartered, came down to pick us up. And uh, they picked us up with our luggage, our sound system, a keyboard, um, 300 um, pounds of, of food um, and medicine and uh, 300 Russian language Bibles. Uh, the Bibles were about this thick. They were nice, big, heavy Bibles. And they were not, well, how can I put it? They had pictures in them. Even I could understand the story without knowing Russian what, by looking at the pictures. And so we had 300 of those. And, 
another group from Soldatna supplied another 300. We loaded up our stuff into a twin-engine Piper Navajo airplane, eight-passenger, and flew from um, Anchorage to Nome. Uh, that was on a Monday. Uh, the idea was to fly to Nome, refuel, and then fly from Nome to Russia. Um, we got to Nome, and uh, the head of the aviation group said, I need to radio ahead to make sure that the airport in Russia will be open. And we kind of laughed, because we realized we weren't flying into a big international airport. But the fact that the airport might not be open was a little strange. Um, he was gone a few minutes, came back, and said, um, the airport in Russia is closed, so we'll be spending the night in Nome. Um, Nome's not a big town. Uh, there's at least one hotel there that I remember. But uh, he called a number of his friends in the area. They called pastors. Pastors came out, and they supplied housing for us that night and said, be back here at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. We'll get in our planes. We'll fly to Russia. So the next morning we get back, 8 o'clock. Uh, the head of the missionary aviation group said I need to, to, to radio them. He radioed over there, and they said the airport's still closed. And he asked them what he could do to get the airport open. And uh, we didn't really hear. Uh, a few minutes later, he came back to the plane, and he goes, I need to make a run. I'll be right back. He ran to the grocery store in Nome, came back with a bag and lined with um, newspaper and a bucket of vanilla ice cream. And we're thinking, wow, you know, it's 8 in the morning. I mean, I'll eat ice cream any time. And then he explained that the ice cream was not for us that the ice cream was going to open the airport in Russia. <laughs> so, okay. We got in our planes, we took off, we flew to Russia. Um, a number of hours, we flew to a, a city called Probodenia. And when you fly into Probodenia, the three sides of the city are lined with mountains. And, and the front side where you fly into is a bay with a big long landing strip. And halfway up the mountainside is what looks like white sandstone. And uh, so we were curious and we were asking uh, our Russian interpreter in the plane. We had a Russian interpreter. That's, I need to tell you about him. His name is Wally Kulikov. Wally worked at HCJB Radio in Quito, Ecuador. Wally and his family escaped Russia when he was a little kid, escaped Russia into China, escaped China, ended up in Australia. So our Russian interpreter is a Russian with an Australian accent who is speaking Spanish on HCJB radio in Quito, Ecuador. Um, we fly into, flying into Providenia and we're asking him what the white is and he tells us that at one point during communism that this city was very important to uh, the military. And that wasn't white sandstone halfway up the mountain. It was once uh, barracks and so on for the Russian troops. And when communism fell, the Russian military decided we don't want civilians moving into these nice barracks. 
So they blew them up. Uh, the town of Providenia is poverty-stricken, um, but yet they didn't want people moving up into the, the mountains to live in these barracks. So that's what the white was. We landed in Providenia. We pulled up to the terminal, the airport terminal. And I've said this before, that the airport terminal really did look terminal. <laughs> it wasn't in very, very good shape. But there were soldiers with guns, and our interpreter said, stay in the plane. Um, I'll go make sure it's okay for us to get out. Um, a few minutes later, he came back. He said, you can get out, go into the terminal, have your passports, all that with you. We got inside, standing on one side of the terminal, looking at the soldiers on the other side, and realized one thing, that these soldiers were not men. They were 15- and 16-year-old boys, and they had weapons. And from a distance, their uniforms looked pretty neat. Up until you got close, seams were coming apart, they were tattered, and frankly, when you started looking at the guns, you wondered if they fired at all. While we were standing there waiting to go through customs, um, a friend of mine from Nashville, his name was Don Wharton, who did not want to go on this trip, who um, got violently ill when he got anywhere near a small airplane, um, just the idea of having to fly in a little plane. And so he was taking Dramamine and chewing gum, and we got to the, we're in this terminal, and he pulls out a pack of gun, gum, opens it up, puts it in his mouth, and it wasn't maybe 30 seconds later one of these young men, one of these soldiers, came to him. I, and I remember thinking, hmm, gum is outlawed here. <laughs> but the soldier came up, and he pointed at the pack of gum. And then he took a medal off his uniform. And he traded, traded this medal for a stick of gum. And I thought, give him the whole pack of gum. <laughs> and not long after that, another young man came up, and he came to me, and I was wearing a Levi's jean jacket. I had a pen in the pocket, and he took a medal off. He handed it to me and pointed at my pen. So I took out the pen. I thought, I'm going to give him the pen. I gave him the pen. It wasn't really my pen. It was from the Hilton in Denver. Um, <laughs> But he wanted my pen. We cleared customs there. We got back out to the airplane. Everything that we had loaded in so well earlier was now sitting outside the plane. We loaded it all back in. We flew to a, a, a town called La Verentia, a town of about 4,000 people. How many of you, there's some of you who are old enough to remember black and white TV. <laughs> when we flew into La Verentia, it was like flying into a black and white movie. Uh, it's up near the Arctic Circle. There's no green grass. The trees were about this tall. If you call them trees, there are more bushes. The buildings were gray. The road was gray. The vehicles, what few of them they had were gray. And frankly, what the people wore was pretty gray. Although there was one little kid running around with the Michael Jordan Bulls um, uniform top on. And uh, we never did figure out where he'd gotten that. But the, the city that we flew into of 4,000 people had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ until a year before. The head of the aviation group we were flying with had gone over there a year before. They had had two meetings in that town where they presented the gospel. 
And don't you suppose, at one of those meetings, the head of the Communist Party, her name was Rosa, got saved. The head of the Communist Party. When we, got there, when we flew into La Verencia, she was there to meet us. She was all excited. Couldn't understand a word she said, but our interpreter, we kept him busy. He relayed back and forth what was being said. And that started three days of witnessing, of talking, playing, singing in this town. Uh, we got there, we went to an auditorium. Uh, it's like the small theater in a small town. It hadn't been open for years. And they told us this is where we'd be playing and singing and talking. I thought, okay. They found a light switch and they turned it on and it was cobwebs and, and dusty. And then a few ladies showed up with buckets and mops and within two or three hours they had the place just spick and span. I mean, it was beautiful. It was an old, ornate theater with a statue of Joseph Stalin out front. So we sang and played there each night. The first night, I'm guessing, we maybe had 50 people. And then the word got out that there were Americans in town. And so people came out of curiosity to see what Americans looked like. Well, we didn't really look a whole lot different than the Russians. The Eskimos looked different than we did, but... So we sang and played. The second night, the room was full. The last night we played, the place was packed, and people standing in the back and people standing outside. And 300 of our Bibles and the other 300 weren't enough for everybody who wanted a Bible. But we gave them out. We visited an Eskimo village, a Russian Eskimo village. We gave out some of the food that we brought. We took oranges and bananas. They didn't know what an orange was. They didn't know what a banana was. We got to this Eskimo village. We handed this little, one little boy an orange. He looked at it and thought it was a ball. And my friend Brian, who was our roadie, he's the one who set up our equipment, drove us around. He showed the kid how to peel the orange. And then he showed him how to eat it. I remember the face of this little guy. He put one of those slices of orange in his mouth and his face went. And then it kind of mellowed out and eventually he told us it was good. But they didn't know what to do with any of this stuff. The Thursday night, the last night that we were in La Verencia, um, we finished up um, loading up the equipment and uh, Rosa came to the back where we were and uh, said that she would like to be baptized. Now the people, I gotta be careful here, the people I was traveling with, I know, I know, they were Lutherans. <laughs> They're good Lutherans, they love Jesus. So we baptized Rosa. None of us were pastors. What would you do? Somebody tell me, what would you do? Yeah. Cool. So we took our gallon of water that we had about half left, and we did it the Lutheran way. We sprinkled her. There was no nice baptistry to put her in. And she just wept.
We packed up our stuff the next morning. We got to the airport. We loaded up our stuff in the plane. Rosa was the first one there. She didn't want us to go. She just clung to people. We got in our eight-place twin-engine Piper Navajo airplane with seven of us. Uh, a gentleman from Russia was flying back with us. He was going to teach in Anchorage. He had papers, and so he was the seventh person flying with us. We left La Varencia, flew back to Providenia, got out of the plane, had nothing left to give the poor soldiers for more medals, and stood there and waited, and we waited, and we waited. Three hours we waited. And finally they said, you can go, but the, the Russian teacher had to stay. Uh, his papers weren't in order, and he was going to have to stay. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not that he didn't want anything to do with us. He just said that wasn't what he was going to believe in. So he stayed behind. For three, over three hours, we didn't see our airplane. We didn't see our equipment. We get out to the airplane. We get to load all our stuff back in. And the pilot says, we need to go. There's weather coming in. And we're already three hours late. We take off, and as we're coming out of the bay, you can see the fog starting to roll in. And the pilot is praising God. We got out of there. He's excited. We take off for Alaska. And uh, we're flying at about 7,000 feet. And... Uh, we get to the St. Lawrence Island and a little town called Gamble, and that's where we landed to clear American customs. Interesting that we get to the town, our pilot circles the town twice, which tells Rodney, the guy who's going to come out and stamp our passports, that he needs to come out to the airport. Rodney comes out on this little three-wheeler. We open the door. Rodney comes up to here on me, and he goes, let me see your passports. We hand him our passports. He looks in the plane. He stamps them, and he says, welcome home. I'm thinking it doesn't look anything like home, but it's America. We close the door. We take off, and as we're taking off, another plane is landing behind us, uh, an air taxi, and we're headed to Nome three hours late. We had a concert lined up in an Eskimo village beyond Nome, two hours beyond Nome for that evening. Our pilot radioed ahead to, to Nome. Uh, they radioed uh, flight service in, in Anchorage. They called the village up in Alaska near the Arctic Circle and said, uh, they're three hours late. They said, we don't care. We'll have everybody there when they come. So we're flying along at 7,000 feet, and all of a sudden, things start to happen that don't seem quite right. The plane starts, to, and there's no way I can explain what the plane does other than it starts doing this. Not going up or down, but just going side to side. And I'm sitting in the way back, and you can see the pilot fiddling with different things. And all of a sudden, one of the engines on the airplane quits. Remember, it's a twin-engine, eight-passenger Piper Navajo. There's a reason they have two engines, I guess. 
you lose one, you still got one. And we find out um, through recordings after this event that the flight service had told the pilot then to go from 7,000 feet to 3,500 feet and hold, hold there. It took about nine minutes from 7,000 feet to 3,500 feet. By this time, anybody who had been sleeping or napping on the plane was now fully awake. And at 3,500 feet, the last engine stops. At this point, we are about 26 miles from Nome, and uh, about three and a half to four miles from an uninhabited island called Sledge Island. The pilot turned around and said, I don't know what's happened, we must be out of fuel. Um, we're going to crash land in the Bering Sea. Hmm. As the plane was going down, we had a prayer meeting. Now, as a kid, I go to prayer meetings with my mom and dad. My mom and dad are here this morning. And you sit in a circle, and you pray, one person at a time. Um, it wasn't quite that type of prayer meeting. We were all praying all at the same time. I believe God hears everybody's prayers everywhere, every time, all the time. And we were praying for things like, well, you can start the engines. You can give us more fuel. Or we were praying for our families. The fact that I don't want to die. I want to see my wife and kids. From 3,500 feet to the surface of the Bering Sea took a minute and a half. And our pilot did something that's amazing. He landed our plane in the Bering Sea. He was headed toward this island called Sledge Island. This island was two and a half miles long, stands 760 feet up in the air. It's flat on top. There's no beach. It's uninhabited. He was trying to get to the top of that island to land the plane. Ah, two and a half miles short. Big deal. <laughs> he landed our plane in the Bering Sea, and, and the only way I can tell you how he did this, this is the nose of the plane. This is the tail. Here's how we landed. And then the plane belly flopped, spun around, and we got out. In that minute and a half of going down, we were trying to figure out, what do we do? The door next to me is the main exit. The door next to my friend Don is the emergency exit. When do we open the doors? We didn't have a flight attendant saying, here's the exit. Take care of yourself first and then the loved ones around you. None of that. All I remember is having my hand on the, on the latch. And when the plane stopped, the doors were gone. The main door opens two ways, top and bottom. There weren't any doors left. Six of them went out the one door. I went out my door. 
On the way out, we took something that we were ferrying back and forth from Alaska to Russia. We were carrying five-gallon aviation fuel cans. Russian aviation fuel doesn't fly our planes very well. The octane isn't, is pretty low. So we were bringing empty cans back to be refilled in Dome and then taken back over. Uh, there weren't any life jackets. There was no cool raft where you pull the cord and, and knowing us we'd have pulled the cord before we got it out of the plane anyway so who knows so we grabbed gas cans and the plan was let's stay with the plane well that plan lasted about a minute we got out the plane disappeared and we found ourselves two and a half miles from this island in water bright sunshine uh, we found out afterwards that the water temperature was 36 degrees, the air temperature was 43, that the winds were out of the south. Had the winds been out of the other direction, the seas would have been higher. We were in what they call three to five foot swells. A swell is different than a wave. A wave crashes into the rock, you hear that, you see it. A swell makes no noise unless it slaps you in the face when you're not prepared for it. So we're out in the water with cans, most everybody took one. I took two. <laughs> there were plenty to go around. Nobody told us how to hang on to those cans, so I just held on by the, the handles. Some were holding them like this. We found ourselves in the water, and uh, immediately we could see that it was really going to be hard to stay, to stay together. The current started pushing us around. While we're in the water, I don't, I don't recall how long we were there. We could see a plane overhead at about 3,500 feet, and we're screaming and hollering. Thought it made sense at the time. And this plane went over, and we thought, do they know where we are? And our pilot said, I radioed our location. He goes, but I don't know. So we're in the water, and a little bit later, we hear a plane. And now there's a plane coming from the other direction, a couple hundred feet off the water. And he goes zipping by us, and we're hollering and screaming. Again, I don't know why. The plane goes downwind, turns around, and all of a sudden the plane comes back, and he starts circling. We found out later that a little Eskimo lady on this air taxi spotted something in the water. And uh, she told the pilot, and the pilot radioed to flight service as he said this. He said, I spot two people and a lot of debris. I always wondered if I was people or debris. <laughs> this pilot had been on the ground when we were going through American Customs. He was an hour late on his flight back. He happened to be behind us. They radioed him and asked him if he saw anything before the crash, or before he knew of the crash. He said, I saw the tail of a whale. Maybe it was the tail of an airplane. I have an idea where it was. Now, it's not like you go to the corner of 7th and Humboldt, and, oh, there they are. But he came back. They circled, and then he radioed saying that, I got to go. I'm running low on fuel. Send somebody else out. Immediately, they sent out another plane who came back and circled. In the meantime... 
they were searching for people to come out and rescue us. Uh, they found a helicopter in Nome and uh, called the pilot to see if he would go out and see if he could help. Um, they got a hold of his wife. She says, Eric just left to go fishing. I'll see if I can catch him, but I think he's gone. And you can hear, she puts the phone down, and you can hear the screen door slam, and you hear her yelling, Eric. And a couple minutes later, she comes back and says, I don't believe it. She goes, I caught Eric. Um, he'll come out. He was going to go fishing. He dropped his keys on the way to his truck, got to the truck, couldn't find the keys, so came back. She goes, that's how I caught him. So he ran to the airport, got the helicopter ready, grabbed two firemen. They came out. Another helicopter that was doing geological survey work in the area, a Canadian helicopter with a pilot and a scientist on board, dropped their million-and-a-half-dollar piece of equipment on the top of a mountain and came to help. By the time they got, the first helicopter got there, we'd been in the water for 45 minutes. You're able to survive in that cold water for maybe 20 minutes. First off, I don't believe that Eric dropping his keys on the way to the helicopter is an accident. I don't believe that the fact we had 25-gallon fuel cans in, in the airplane is an accident. I don't believe that the people who were praying for us at 7.10 on Friday evening, when our plane went down, I don't believe that was an accident. A lady was woken from a deep sleep back in Russia. She was coming back the following day with the group. She'd been sick. At 7.10, she woke up and the Holy Spirit prompted her to pray, pray. At 7.10, Alaska time when our plane is going down, my kids are being a pain. My wife takes them into her bed and says, we need to pray for daddy. It's not an accident. The helicopters came. We thought, yay. By this time, I couldn't see anybody else. The current was such that we were in an area of over, over two football fields. The helicopter came, and it came to Brian, and Brian, who was the youngest of all of us, said, go to Cary. They came to me, and I realized there's no pontoons on this helicopter. They're not throwing out any cable with a nice little donut to put around me. They're not going to winch me up. This pilot is sticking the skid of the helicopter in the water. And a guy is standing out on the skid holding onto his seatbelt with his arm down saying, come on, we got to go. I've never been so scared in my life. Those gas cans that were keeping me afloat, now the wash from the helicopter is pushing both me and the cans under the water. I thought, I'm going to drown in trying to be rescued. And the guy goes, let go of the cans. But the noise is so loud. He goes, let go of the cans. So I did. As soon as I let go, he grabbed me here. 
And he starts pulling me out. And then he goes, oh my, he goes, I need help. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're going to be here a long time. Um, he goes, I need help. And they pull and he goes, he's a big one, isn't he? <laughs> They pulled me in. They went to my friend Dave. They pulled him in. But now there's not a whole lot of room in the helicopter. And he says, you need to sit up in the co-pilot seat so we can make more room. And I'm thinking, great. The problem is there's all these switches and dials. And I can't feel anything from here down. Thinking, oh dear God, don't let me turn the helicopter off. <laughs> and we crawled over, and they go back to get our pilot. At this point, our pilot, who was holding onto his can like this, has now let go of his can. Our pilot was 72 years old at the time. I'm not saying that's old. But he let go of his can. He took a big hit to the head from the, from the dashboard of the plane when the plane went in. And he was literally 12 inches under the water when they grabbed him and pulled him up. And I'm watching, and they pulled him out. And you could see him. You couldn't hear it. I'm, I'm sure I could, thought I could hear it. But you could see him take this big gulp of air. And they realized, we can't get him in the, in the helicopter. So they put him over the skid. And now we fly two and a half miles to the top of this uninhabited island. We get to the top of the island, and the pilot goes, I can't land it. We'll crush the guy. He goes, I'll get as close as we can. Well, two and a half to three feet was about as close as he got. And the poor guy, they just dumped him off. And we got out. They threw out a sleeping bag and said, take care of him. We're going back. And I don't know. I've... It's not fun having to slap a 72-year-old man to keep him awake. But the helicopter went back out. They brought more. The last person to get rescued was our friend Brian, who should have been the first. Brian, at this point, had been in the water for an hour. And Brian had let go of his gas can and was swimming for help, except he was swimming the wrong direction. They got Brian to the top of the island. <laughs> and Brian, Brian, I was pretty sure he was speaking in tongues. <laughs> he made absolutely no sense. They loaded us up in the helicopters. Uh, the other helicopter rescued, rescued Barb. We flew to Nome. And uh, what they did for us in Nome was incredible. I'm sorry, I'm, the time is getting away. When we got to Nome, there was a lady in the hospital in Nome waiting to have a baby. They had called a bunch of people in to help. People crawled out of the woodwork in Nome. They did things for us that were unreal. They laid us on gurneys. There was only one emergency room, so there were two people in there. Three of us were outside on the gurneys in the hallway on these metal gurneys under piles of blankets that they'd brought that had come right out of the dryer, nice and warm. But you're on this metal gurney, and you can't control your shaking, and it rattles, and all we could do was laugh. They thought we were nuts. Why are they laughing? We had to tell them we were gospel singers. That made them laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, God is with us. 
It's the only reason we're here. By 3 o'clock the next morning, everybody had been released from the hospital. By 8 o'clock that morning, we were on airplanes heading back to our homes. It's not fun getting on an airplane after you just... <laughs> I do have to say this. I traveled a lot, flew a lot after that. And you're in a plane, and you're not sitting by people you know, and you strike up a conversation, and, and the person asks you what you do or where you're going, and you tell them, and they say, oh, you're, so you travel a lot? And eventually the conversation comes down to, so what kind of exciting things have happened to you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me tell you. And you tell, and you tell them a little bit, and it's interesting how quickly they ask to be seated someplace else. <laughs> what are the odds that I'll be in another plane crash? Why don't you want to sit by me? There are more than 30 miracles that happened that day that made it possible for me to be here. I, I don't know your situation this morning. You know, there wasn't one thing I could do to rescue myself. My friend Don from Nashville said this. He said, Satan knocked our plane out of the sky but it landed in the hands of God there's not a day that goes by that I don't thank him you know we're, we're all a miracle here you woke up this morning you came here this morning and we all have situations that we're going through, things that are hard, things that sometimes we don't feel like we can get out of. But it's not new to God. He knows. God wants to help us where we're at. He wants to rescue us today. I'm going to close right here. I'm sorry for going late. There's a lot of stuff that you ask me sometime, I'll tell you, can I tell you one more thing? Our, our, friend, our friend Brian was quoting Bible verses out in the water when we were all first together. And some of them were really good Bible verses, but the Bible verse that makes me giggle still today, this is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> I remember thinking, are you kidding? Thank you for listening. Let's pray and then we'll go. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for, for rescue, for physical, emotional, spiritual rescue that you do for us so many times. So many times we don't see or even notice what you've done for us or what you've kept us from, but we thank you today. And I pray if those are, there are those who need rescue this morning that, um, that you'd be very near to them, that they would turn to you and realize that you're the only one who can help. 
that you want to help them, that you want to be near them, that you want to give them strength for this time. And I thank you for that. I pray that you'd be with us through this week as we uh, live our lives, that we come in people in contact with people, that we tell them who you are, that they see you and us. Thank you for this time this morning. Be with us as we go our way. In Jesus' name.